If you have a Bible, you can turn in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 36. Continuing our sequential reading through the book of Genesis as we continue in our sermon series through Matthew. We come to Genesis 36. We'll read verse 31 through the end of the chapter. Lend your attention. This is God's word. These are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the Israelites. Bela, the son of Baor, reigned in Edom, the name of his city being Dinchabah. Bela died, and Jobab, the son of Zerah, of Bozrah, reigned in his place. Jobab died, and Husham, of the land of the Temanites, reigned in his place. Husham died, and Hadad, the son of Badad, who defeated Midian in the country of Moab, reigned in his place, the name of his city being Avith. Hadad died, and Samla of Masraka reigned in his place. Samla died, and Shaul of Rehoboth on the Euphrates reigned in his place. Shaul died, and Baal Hanan, the son of Achbor, reigned in his place. Baal Hanan, the son of Achbor, died, and Hadar reigned in his place, the name of his city being Pau. His wife's name was Mehetabal, and the daughter of Matred, daughter of Mezachab. These are the names of the chiefs of Esau according to their clans and their dwelling places by their names. The chiefs of Timnah, Alva, Yetheth, Ocholibama, Elah, Pinan, Kenaz, Teman, Mibzar, Magdiel, and Iram. These are the chiefs of Edom, that is Esau, the father of Edom, according to their dwelling places in the land of their possession. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. You can turn in the New Testament to the Gospel of Matthew. And we come to Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 12. This is God's word. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Uh, Join me in prayer. Father, it is a great gift to uh, have the word of our Lord Jesus Christ fill uh, this place. Um, To have your word come to us so plainly, Lord, is a mighty privilege. And so we ask that you would attend uh, this reading and uh, this opening of your word with your blessing. 
uh, that we might behold uh, your excellencies on display as you have made yourself known as a good and wise father uh, in all of your dealings, Lord, but preeminently and supremely and with life-giving power uh, in sending the beloved son uh, to bear our sins and to bring us near, though we had lost our way in sin and judgment. So we ask, Lord, that you would be pleased to build us up now, uh, to feed us as only you can, to nurture that life which you've brought forth in our hearts, or to bring light, Lord, where there is currently darkness. And for we ask these things in Christ's name, amen. In God's kindness, I am utterly convinced that my dad desires my good and that he would go to no small length to obtain it. Uh, I believe that this is the experience of many of us by God's kindness. If you're a father, you have a direct glimpse into this. Uh, Even as a sinner, uh, if your children ask you for such a plain and basic good, you're likely going to give it. You're certainly not going to give them the opposite of it in some sort of posture of mocking. As we survey the broad world of dads, we can see something of goodness and care extended instinctively to children. Even if your particular circumstances were marred by difficulty, which our Lord plainly acknowledges here, saying, if you being evil, even if your circumstances were marred in difficulty, I trust you've seen something of this, either in your own circumstances or in the circumstances of others. Our Lord assumes this to be the case, does he not? He assumes that there is something of goodness and care recognizable among fathers, and it is an important point. It is an important recognition because he takes it and he goes further than it. And he says that this glimpse, this goodness and care recognizable among sinners is but a faint glimpse, but a true glimpse of the perfect heavenly father. Now I want to consider the context of the chapter just for a moment before we return to this point. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, the Lord warns us against judging one another. This is a warning against our harshness and eagerness to pronounce upon the actions of others. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 6, the Lord warns, warns us against giving holy things to dogs and pigs. This is a call for spiritual discernment in a world that can be quite dangerous. Notice that both of these calls are calls not to do something. Do not judge. Do not give. Here in verses 7 through 12, we receive two calls to do something. Ask. Do unto others. Mm. At the most basic level, we should note that the Lord never leaves us Simply with what is forbidden, do not do. He always supplies us with a new and better, a Christian direction. Devote yourself to this instead. Here he gives us the new direction. Devote yourself to prayer. And whenever you act towards another, 
Ask simply, if I were in their position, what would I want done to me? Our Lord thus exhorts us to a prayer-filled life before our Father, which is a necessary posture for a life of love in wisdom towards one another. Mark that. Our Lord exhorts us to a prayer-filled life before the Father, which is the necessary posture for a life of love in wisdom toward one another. Should I say it one more time? Our Lord exhorts us to a prayer-filled life before the Father. This is the necessary posture for a life of love in wisdom towards one another. And to move and compel us unto such a prayer-filled life, he gives us one of the plainest and most striking pictures of the goodness of God in all of Scripture. To move us and to compel us to this prayer-filled life, he gives us one of the plainest and most striking pictures of the goodness of God in all of Scripture. From this, we learn several things. One, we are slow to prayer and need constant encouragement to pray. Is that true? Two, at some level, one of the major hindrances to prayer is found in our thinking that God is not good and that he does not care. Is that not true? I don't know where you're at on that one, Janet. <laughs> <laughs> That one's just as true as the first one. <laughs> Three, our life of love towards others is very much tied towards our life of prayer. Our life of love towards others is very much tied. Stands or falls, you might say, with our life of prayer. So let's consider. First, Jesus calls you to pray, verse 7. Second, Jesus assures you of the Father's goodness in verses 8 through 11. And third, Jesus calls you to love in verse 12. First, our Lord calls us to a life of prayer. Verse 7, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. These are commands. Each of these are imperatives. Ask. Seek, knock. But it's fair to say they're actually working more as conditions. These are conditional statements. So you could render this passage, if you ask, then you will receive. If you seek, then you will find. If you knock, then it will be open to you. We are Calvinists, but we do not deny the necessity of means. We see here that while God is disposed to give the children much good in his wisdom, he instructs us to explicitly ask for that good in prayer. 
Further, this asking and seeking and knocking is not something we do once. Rather, this is something which characterizes our entire Christian life before God. In other words, we rightly understand this passage not as a call to pray occasionally, but rather as a call to cultivate a habit of prayer, a posture of prayer. We can look at both of those statements. Our Lord has just assured us of God's fatherly care in Matthew 6, hasn't he? It's one of our favorite passages in all of Scripture. Do not be anxious. And then he surveys the birds and the flowers. He says, our Father cares for you more than flowers, more than birds. He's made you for something more than food, more than clothing, more than shelter. He knows you need those things, and he's called you to something higher, namely knowing him, worshiping him, following him. Seek the higher things and trust that he gives you the necessary things, for he designed you with those needs, and thus he's willing to give you those needs. But here we learn that all that God has promised us, all of the good which he freely gives us, he calls us to seek in prayer. Now again, mark our silly hearts. We see those things in tension with one another, don't we? Or minimally, we see them as a waste of time. If he's promised us, why doesn't he just give it to us? But we've already made the argument that God is more interested in our heart towards him than he is in just giving us things. And thus he instructs us to seek from him. But we're confronted with two immediate dangers when it comes to our asking things of God. Both of these are set forth by James in James chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. He writes, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Both of these are dangers confronting our life of prayer, particularly in the light of passages such as this. Are they not? The first danger, simply not asking, is silly. And it's directly addressed by our Lord. We are forced to acknowledge that very often we're guilty of just not asking. Mark if that's not the case. Mark how much good we're acknowledged, we're forced to acknowledge that we forfeited simply because we don't ask. Scripture is full of promises that God has made to us. How many of them do we even seek? How many of them do we explicitly petition from his hand? We see this silliness play out in our family lives, don't we? Husbands and wives, how often do you find yourselves angry with your spouse because they failed to do something you never asked them to do? You all do this. <laughs> You find yourself stewing in anger at the one whom you love because they've failed to do the thing that you've kept hidden from them. <laughs> and partly you childishly think, well, they should have known. Mark, if we don't think that way towards God. He does know, but he also calls us to ask. He assures us that we know, and thus we know that we're not informing him when we ask him of things, and thus something bigger, something better is going on than a mere exchange of information. 
There's a fellowship that's being cultivated. There's a closeness that's being cultivated as we heed this call unto prayer. How many times we've failed just to ask. I find this is particularly true in our growth in grace, is it not? How many of you find yourself small in love towards Christ, slight in love towards others, small in patience, kindness, gentleness, with folly near at hand in your heart, lacking wisdom? Aren't we forced to ask at some level, well, how regularly do I pray for these things? How regularly do I pray for those fruit of the Spirit to characterize my life? He says it will. Do we seek it? Even if you entered into just a bare quantitative analysis of your prayer, how often we are found praying for things to happen to us in terms of the circumstances in this life compared to being full of faith, hope, and love, growing in those things. Which one is better? Circumstance or abiding fruit of the Spirit? You don't have because you don't ask, beloved. Does this resonate on any level? I hope it does. The other danger James pray, pro profiles is either childish or wicked. You examine your own heart. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend on your passions. Meaning we pray for things that are more in line with our fleshly desires than we are with God's higher purposes. They're more in line with our will and our limited perception and less in line with what God has explicitly said is good for us. Now, this is possibly simply childish. As a child, you think your good is to be found in, in candy and not going to bed and being allowed to pick what you have for dinner. And so it is with the foolishness of our early years as Christians. We have to learn not only to seek things from God, but what to seek from God. What sorts of things constitute our true good? A child thinks that candy is better than a parent's love, mostly because they just don't know the riches of the abstract, the non-concrete just yet. But we ought not to excuse ourselves as Calvin doesn't. He points out that the sinful heart is so sinful that it doesn't even shrink back from bringing sinful requests to God. This is shameful. But in either case, it's forcing us to pause and ask the question, why am I seeking this? Why am I asking this from God? Is it for my glory or God's glory? Is this in accord with his word and his will, or is it something I am simply bent on? Here we recall the Lord's Prayer as Jesus orients our heart to the ultimate good in God's kingdom advancing, his will being done, his name being magnified, and the manifold good that this ushers in for us. The last observation we ought to make on verse 7 is that this is not an invitation to pray on occasion. This is a call to a life of prayer a prayerful posture, the habit of prayer. There's a very great difference between reading a book once and being a reader, of going for a run once and being a runner. 
of praying on occasion and being a prayer. The call here is to be a prayer. This will become plain in the picture that the Lord uses of our position before God as children. Children, it's good to remember that all the good that you have, all of the clothes, all of your food, your bed, the house you live in, the education you receive, your parents are God's means of giving you these things. You didn't earn them in any strict sense. You don't work for them in any strict sense. Your whole life comes from them, so to speak. And this is God's good design. In an even deeper and more comprehensive sense, all our good comes from God. There's no good to be found apart from him. The call here is to seek that good from him, to recognize that all good comes from him, and to acknowledge our tendency to seek good apart from him, even though we've all had the experience that nothing apart from him can satisfy. David sings in Psalm 27, One thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. It's very tempting for me to see that specific passage behind the Lord's teaching here. One thing I have asked, ask and you will receive. That will I seek, seek and you will find. And then the image of a house and a door and knocking. Beloved, Jesus is the true temple. He is the dwelling place, the manifestation in this sad world of the presence of God to be had and found in blessing. And he says, come to me. All who come to me, I will not cast out. He says, the need that you have ultimately is for me. You need a savior. You need the true and living God. You need me. Beloved, the Lord Jesus Christ stands forth here as the prime, supreme, unparalleled evidence of the goodness of God, beckoning unto sinners to come home. And to find that the one that they need most is the one who stands before them in Christ saying, come to me and I will give you what you need. Beloved, this is the one who instructs us in prayer. This is the one who teaches us to pray to the Father. This is the one who tells us of our great need not to pray once, but to posture ourselves in prayer before him. Can you hear his word? Can you heed it this day? This takes us to our next consideration, namely that the Son assures us of the Father's goodness. Verses 8 through 11. Everyone who asks, receive. The one who seeks, find. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? 
The Lord teaches us that the strongest motivation to pray is a consideration of God's boundless goodness as our Heavenly Father. That in and of itself is rather counterintuitive, isn't it? We think that the strongest motivation is fear. The strongest motivation you can give someone is threat. Here, the beauty of goodness, the abundance of goodness, the bounty of the Father is set forth as that which is to elicit, entice hearts of prayer. This is Christ's decision to teach in this way. This is not my decision. This is no imposition of my understanding. It is Christ saying, you have a problem with prayer. You are reticent to prayer. And to balm that, consider how good God is. That in and of itself is lovely, is it not? That in and of itself attests the excellencies of God, a sort of counterintuitive picture of this God, because we marked already that our suspicion towards him is that he's cruel, that he's malicious, that he's harsh. Here Christ combats that, saying, no, 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 he's good. He's very good. You know, this is one of our favorite themes in this church, the goodness of God. The psalmist extols, you are good and you do good. Your mercy is over all that you have made. Beloved, we have far too low a view of the goodness of God. Mark, if that isn't the case. There are some remarkably broad promises concerning God's willingness to hear our prayers and to give us good things as his children. John 14, 13 and 14. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. First John 5, 14 and 15, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that we ask anything according to his will, and he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. Verse 8 is just as broad and just as stunning, is it not? Everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. The one who knocks, it will be open to him. Stop the objections of your heart. Right now, you're probably adducing a host of experiences that you would set forth as proving that this is not the case. God's word trumps your experience every time. Every time. Let me assure you. His word is true. Whatever he is saying here is 100% true. Whatever he is saying in the John passage, whatever he's saying in the first John passage, it's true. Who cares what you've experienced? His word is a surer indication of reality than what you experience. Beloved, that's the life of faith. It says that God's word is a better indicator of what is real than what I am experiencing right now. Rejoice that that is true because you're going to go through seasons of darkness. You're going to go through valleys. You're going to go through shadows of death and your experience is going to tell you I'm forsaken. God's word is going to tell you I'm with you. I hope his word wins in communicating to you what's true. I'll be there with you, telling you that it is, because that's why he sent me. Our experience, however accurate it might be, doesn't undermine the truth of these wonderful statements. And they're set forth here to highlight that the Father delights to receive our prayers. 
that he delights to give us good things. And there is great encouragement for us in this to pray. Is there not? Isn't this a direct assault on some of the most fundamental doubts that we have which keep us from praying? God isn't good. He doesn't care. He doesn't hear. Jesus says he is good. He cares. He hears. He gives. And even though we can put forth slight evidence that sometimes things don't go exactly as we've configured them in our prayer, how much more... Are our hearts attuned by God's word to see, oh yeah, he does this a lot. (laughs) He actually answers prayers quite frequently. Just consider our brief time together as sheep and shepherd. I've been here for four years. How many times do we pray for safe travels for people as they traverse the world? How many times have we prayed for the safe birth of children? How many times have we prayed for God to restore health? How many times have we prayed for God to adorn difficult seasons with evidence of his fatherly care and mercy? How many times have we prayed that God would sanctify faith even through hard things? Beloved, that is a very small sample of the promises that God has made, the particular petitions that we have offered. And that alone provides us with no small sample of how frequently he answers our prayers. We asked and received. We sought and found. We knocked and the door was open because God's word is true. Mm. Beloved, let that be levied against the doubt that we continually entertain. Let his word Interpreting our experience, not our experience interpreting his word, be the light which continues to direct our paths. But we do have to acknowledge that it's not just doubt which makes passages like this difficult. We can admit that the difficulty also comes from some very real perplexities. We can admit that. We can admit that. There's room to admit that. I've prayed, as I'm sure you have, for things that seem so obviously good to me. So obviously good to God. Have you not? Have you had this experience? I trust that you have. The conversion of friends and families. Sparing the life of little ones or those near unto death too early. Being on your knees in tears, praying in earnest that the Lord would do what seems so obviously good. And he doesn't. We would be silly to deny that that is a fact of our experience. So it's important for us to hear this passage teaching us that God doesn't just answer prayer. He answers prayer as our Father. This doesn't completely resolve the tension here, but it is self-evident that a father knows better than a child. It is self-evident that a father has a gaze that's further reaching than his child. It's self-evident that a father understands what a child needs better than what a child understands. Are those things not true? Those things are true. 
And we can glimpse those things even in our fallen state and our families, can we not? As children, very often the decisions that our parents make perplex us. Sometimes it's quite silly. I can remember a time when my brother and I desperately thought our life depended upon us sleeping in the garage one night. I wish I were making this up. (laughs) We begged our parents, can we please sleep in the garage? We must sleep in the garage. You don't understand. They said no. You're being unreasonable. (laughs) We didn't understand. As children, it seemed such an obvious good to us. It seemed like it would cost them nothing to grant. I'm making a silly illustration. In time, I came to see that I would probably make the same decision as a parent. Chipmunks live in my garage. Maisie would not do well with chipmunks. I would tell them, no, you can't sleep in the garage. It would perplex her. It would upset her if this were something she had set her heart on. It seems so obviously good to her. And such is the case with children and parents. And such is the nature of understanding that only comes with time. Now, if the gap between Maisie's understanding and my understanding is significant, how much more the gap between our understanding and the infinite God of the universe who is marshalling all things to showcase a tapestry of his glory that is ongoing until the day that Christ returns. There are very real perplexities that come when we seek such seemingly self-evident good. There's no obvious or simple answer to those moments, but there is a balm to be had in the evident goodness and wisdom of God on display to us, to us, us, and thus assuring us that he's not sparing any good thing from us. Take that balm, beloved, and let that too work to drive you to further prayer. We can consider last, Jesus calls us to love. Verse 12 closes, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. With this, the Lord brings the main body of the Sermon on the Mount to a close. The remainder of chapter 7 are actually calls to heed his word. We're going to get a number of different calls. But here he brings the teaching to a close, and so it's fitting to note that he closes with our posture before God and our posture before man. You might say that this accurately summarizes the two tablets of the law, the two tables of the law. That before God, our posture is to be one of childlike trust, looking to the Lord Jesus Christ as the Father's proof and provision of all good to us, and thus heeding his call to continually posture ourselves in that position of trust and dependence as we walk our Christian life. But he's not just interested in our posture before him, is he? He is consistently profiling that our posture towards one another is intimately tied to our posture towards him is in fact a clear indicator of what our posture before him actually is. And so verse 12 seems to make quite a bit of sense tied to verses 7 through 11. So we can ask two questions of verse 12. First, what does it mean? And then second, what on earth does it have to do with verses 7 through 11? You'll notice that in your Bibles, there may even be a gap between verse 11 and verse 12. 
I don't disagree with Calvin often. Please don't tell him I said this. But I think he's wrong as he says 12 has nothing to do with verses 7 through 11. Mm. But first, what does this mean, verse 12? The golden rule is rather simple and elegant. When dealing with someone else, ask yourself, if I were them, how would I want to be treated? And then do that. The wisdom in the, I mean, try to summarize any vastly complex thing. Any vastly complex thing. Someone asked me the other day what my dissertation was about. And I went on this rambling, incoherent, semi-lecture for like a half hour. Look like a, whatever. <laughs> this is, like, summarize God's requirement of you. Okay, here. That's remarkable. Like the wisdom of Christ, the excellencies of Christ on display in this. Remarkable. The greater Solomon is here. We sit at his feet. Let's not forget that. When dealing with someone else, we ask, if I were them, how would I want to be treated? What's this cause us to wrestle with? Well, first, it highlights our tendency to deal much more generously with ourselves than we deal with others. We've spoken of this before. My sin is almost always understandable. If you just knew my upbringing, if you just knew the day that I had, if you just knew the hand that I had been dealt, well, then you would extend to me understanding and compassion as I act this way. But when it comes to others, we don't grant them a history. We don't grant them a context. We're very slow to extend to them this consideration. It also highlights our tendency to study our own good much more closely than we tend to study the good of others. Again, we've also mentioned this before, but I trust you've forgotten because you're a bunch of selfish sheep. <laughs> Just mark what fills your spare thoughts. It's usually plans for your own advancement, your own success, how to obtain what you want or what you think you need. How often are you tormented at night thinking, how can I do good unto others if I could only obtain this good for so-and-so? Very infrequently, if ever. Mark, if that isn't true. We only seldomly spend energy planning and purposing the good of others. Seldom at best. It also highlights how quickly we are to protest our own mistreatment. And how slow we are to see our mistreatment of others. If we feel others are not extending to us that understanding and compassion which we mentioned, we cry foul. If we feel others are only thinking of themselves, we cry foul. And at the same time, don't extend it to them. At the same time, with impunity, withhold it from those who have the exact same need we do. The brilliance of this moral lens is that it trades upon what we know to be true. 
But it also says in a sort of roundabout way, yeah, people do need compassion just like you need compassion. People do need understanding just like you need understanding. People do need others' help in obtaining good just like you need help in obtaining good. And this is preeminently on display in the posture of prayer which precedes it, where we acknowledge our needs and God is the one who mercifully gives it. Do you see the brilliance of this? It's magnificent. So you can start to see why this high calling, this high Christian calling, this calling towards a life of love is so intimately tied to prayer. First, because you all, myself included, fall woefully short of this and we're in need of forgiveness. Are we not? Let this indict you. You extend yourself far more understanding than you're willing to extend to others. You study your own good far more zealously than you study the good of others. You cry foul over your own mistreatment much more regularly than you cry foul over your mistreatment of others or the mistreatment of others. Indicted every single one of us. So what do we need? Forgiveness. That can only come from the one whom the Father set forth to fulfill this high call of love. Beloved, do not mistake any frail advancement you've made in this direction for fulfillment of what this calls for. There's only one who has fulfilled what this is called for, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ. It's his righteousness alone which covers helpless and naked sinners such as we. It's his blood alone which cleanses our selfish hearts, which bathes us from the impurity of our hands and our sins. Christ and Christ alone. And so we hear this call and the first reflex of the heart is, Father, forgive me. I've fallen woefully short of this. My life is steeped in selfishness, even as a Christian who has known the love of Christ. But second, because Christ truly does work a different manner of life in us, does he not? This beautiful call to the life of love is what Paul sets forth in Romans 13, where he says, the whole law is fulfilled as you love one another. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. It sounds very similar to what the Lord teaches in Matthew 22 about the second greatest commandment. Shall love your neighbor as yourself. On this depends all the law and the prophets. Jesus Christ came to fulfill the law perfectly as the atoning sacrifice, but also as the one in whom God is pleased to transform us, to look more and more like this, to look more and more like Christ. Praise his name. That's our end. That we're going to be like him perfectly when Christ returns, but truly now. And so our heart, hearing this, is forced to acknowledge, I am poor in spirit. And Jesus says, well, blessed are the poor in spirit. Our heart says, oh, this is beautiful. I hunger, I thirst for this vision of righteousness. And Jesus says, well, blessed are the hungry and the thirsty. They will be satisfied. Prayer fuels this because this only comes about in anyone by the regenerating and the renewing grace of God. And we long to see it among us, don't we? And so prayer is tied to this call. 
as children seek this good from their father, that we would be like him more and more unto the day of eternity. But last, the posture of prayer is that posture of humility and dependence, which positions us to consider the needs of others. It's hard to be a judge when you're taking this posture. It's hard to haughtily pronounce your sentence upon everyone as you're acknowledging before the Lord your need for forgiveness, as you're acknowledging before the Lord your bankruptcy of spirit, as you're acknowledging before the Lord that apart from the grace and the mercy extended unto you in the Lord Jesus Christ, you would be lost. Rather, what emerges from this is a consideration that others do have needs just as you do. And more than that, God is oftentimes pleased to use us as instruments to meet those needs, to care for those who are in need. And it's this posture of our needs set forth and fulfilled before the Father, which attunes us and empowers us to actually consider the needs of others and in faith to do them real good whether it's practically extending care to them or simply lifting them up in prayer as in need of the very same grace and mercy that we are in need of. Beloved, there is no true love apart from a hearty and full acknowledgement of our need for mercy and God's provision of mercy in the Lord Jesus Christ. Furthermore, God's provision of mercy in the Lord Jesus Christ is not fully exercised until we begin asking, how can we love others in a way that is faintly similar to the way that we have been loved? Beloved, do you have ears to hear this? I pray that you do. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, you are good beyond all telling. And so strengthen us as we consider this word this day. As you call us to lives of prayer, as you call us to seek the good which you've promised to do us, and as you use us, Lord, as we walk in faith uh, to care for one another as those whom you've taken unto yourself. We pray, Lord, that this way of life would be seen among us more and more until the day that Christ returns. For we ask in his name, amen.